Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. Today, we're going to talk about honesty and trust and what that means from uh, how you lead your people as well as an organizational perspective. And today's guest um, is Ron Carucci, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Navalent. Uh, He works with CEOs and executives um, pursuing transformational change uh, for their organisations, their leaders and across industries. He's the author of, I believe, nine books um, and he's a regular contributor to HBR and Forbes. Um, His passion, his newest passion is around um, his book, To Be Honest, Lead with Power, um, sorry, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice and Purpose. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ron. Shelly, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So where does uh, where did the idea for, for this book come about for you? Well, it wasn't, it didn't start out as a book. It started out as a 15-year longitudinal study of 3,200 leaders. Um, I wanted we we use a, a really really cool, sophisticated AI technology to do our, our analytical work and research. And we decided this time around to not go in with a hypothesis. We decided to see how intelligent. The technology was and to say well if you're so intelligent tell us what we should be asking you about and so we fed it you know tetrabytes of 15 years of data and it came back with some very interesting drill sites around correlations in the data we, we fed it some system sort of you know de- definitions but one of them was on the predictive predictive ability of honesty under what conditions people would tell the truth and behave fairly and serve a greater good so we thought, well, that's compelling. So we went back into those drill sites and drilled harder to see what the data would tell us. And indeed, we because I thought, well, if you could actually predict what the precursors are to, you know, desirable behavior versus misconduct, could you then prevent the misconduct and encourage better behavior? And wouldn't that be compelling? Um, and indeed, the data did give us four very um, hiding in plain sight kind of conditions in organizations that are encouraging the best and the worst of our behavior. And when we saw how compelling the data was, I think that's when I began to think, well, maybe this is more than publishing the research in an article. Maybe there is more here to say. And I think that's when I felt the compulsion to say we should do it. we should do the book. But not a book of a warning, not a sort of a, you know, a dire, grim, one more story of another villain. We don't need any more Theranos stories or, you know, Wells Fargo stories. I wanted to go back and tell the stories of the heroes. I thought, I'm gonna go find the leaders and organizations who are actually embodying the conditions the data describes. Uh, the, the leaders we'd be proud to emulate, the people we would want as our bosses, the companies we all dream of working for, so that we could tell a story that would light the path. So that's what we did. How do you find organizations like that? You know, it was also hiding in plain sight, Shelley. There, there are actually, Plenty of them. There are far more of them than there are of the villain stories. The villain stories just make the headlines and they're more popular. But the reality is there are actually far more good-hearted leaders and good-hearted organizations trying to do the right thing and trying to live up to the best of their standards. Not everybody was having a mass resignation in the last three years. Many were, and they deserved it. Uh, 
but far just, just, just as many, we're having many people want to stay put because their organizations do care and they do hold themselves to high standards uh, and live by the words they claim. Do you find there is a differentiation between industry or um, organizational size or structure for that uh, matter? You know, no, we, we, we did look at that. You know, there are some industries like financial services that are known for greed or some industries that are more prone to overseas corruption, but you have just as many companies in those industries also living by higher standards. So I don't think there's any, every industry has risk. Every industry has vulnerabilities to it, whether they're external disruptions or internal cultures or competitive sets that are under, under siege. But those are choice points, right? And you can choose to do with those inflection points or those pressure points or those vulnerabilities, however you, however you want. You don't have to succumb to, you know, misconduct or bad behavior to, to deal with them. Where do you think it starts from or even stops? Um, it, is it the CEO that has that the greatest impact or influence on you know, there's certainly a top-down reality, right? Certainly look at one of the stories in the book is Microsoft. And of course, at the helm, you have a leader in Satya who is who is spearheading an incredible culture transformation. And he has a team around him who shares those values and that vision. Certainly makes it a lot easier. Um, it's, not, it's not a complete, um, fait complete that if you don't have those conditions, you can't change a culture from the bottom up. I think there are realities that, you know, you, you need a variety of forces from external to internal, to bottom, to top, to make uh, and sustain any kind of cultural change. Certainly when you have leaders who are modeling behavior antithetical to what you're trying to become, you can kiss it off. It's not gonna, it won't happen. And you're gonna have people who don't stay. And thus, you know, I'm not sure what it's like in your world, but over here we had 70 million people quit their jobs in the last five months, six months. Um, And that was the good talent that quit and left. The mediocre talent quit and stayed, uh, and uh, and th- those toxic organizations and those leaders that thought that they were all that in a bag of chips are now paying the price for that for their lack of regard for the example they set. Do you think that they know that they have a lack of regard because of, of, often the commentary that goes with why they do what they do is very purpose driven and comes from a good place, but is I don't know. I guess they're, are they limited in? It's a great question. Show. I, I think there's two categories. I think they're, they're, they're certainly those who are just performative, right? They, it's just, it's it actually, you know, I'm going to create the illusion of something good here. It's all, it's purpose washing, right? But I think that there is also a set of folks who are wildly naive about what it actually takes to embody an example. I think when, I'm always amazed when I ask leaders, do your people trust you? They, they're often, you know, put off by the question and with this almost incredulous response of, well, well, why wouldn't they trust me? As, and what, what that tells me is that they're relying on their intentions. That because I intend to be trustworthy, therefore I have earned your trust. Which of course, when you say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But in their minds, because they have arrived at a certain place in, their, in the hierarchy, because they are on the jumbotron, they presume that their intentions are in fact translating into daily behaviors and system, systemic actions that the organization is then therefore following as if they could read their mind. Which once again, when you say it out loud, sounds foolish. But I think that is what is operative in their mind and they don't understand and appreciate that, especially today in a trust recession where earning and keeping trust of others is harder than ever, that it takes so much more 
than your good intentions or even verbalizing your intentions, whether they're you know, explicit or not, to actually set an example, others will follow. Do you think that, um, you know, leaders or particularly senior leaders, executives need to do some inner work before they communicate their intentions? Because sometimes you think you know your intentions and then when you say it out loud, it's like, "Mm, I can't really share that. (laughs) Um, They absolutely need to do inner work. I don't know that they always have the luxury of doing it before they get to articulate their intentions. Sometimes they have to be honest and articulate the vulnerability of what they're working on which actually can be even, even more of a credibility builder than just saying something that sounds complete, but people know not to be true. And so being vulnerable about the things you're working on can be actually very helpful. But without that inner work, not only do the intentions come out in a very muddled way, um, they find that the embodiment of those intentions is far harder. Uh, that when I ask them to examine things like how they spend their time or where they place their budgets or who they're hiring, uh, as barometers of the things they say they intend to buy, they find all kinds of gaps they didn't intend to find. And they realize, my gosh, those gaps are not only visible, but they're being copied. Um, and what you have then done is not only not embody your intentions, what you have told the organization is you've institutionalized duplicity. You've actually said around here, it's perfectly okay to say one thing and do another. And so if I, if I ask people to hold up your company's values or vision statement or purpose statement or whatever, whatever promise you have made in words uh, on your website and in your lobby walls, whatever, and ask leaders, if, if we followed you around all day long with a video camera and videoed you a day in the life, could we use that video as a training program to train against these words? And if so, people, would people see it as credible? And suddenly the words become very different in their minds. Mm-hmm. And they realize people are watching and people are kicking cues, and the wider the gap between your the, the wider the wider your say do gap, um, the more the the, le- the less you are trusted. And what people, what leaders, just to your point earlier, what leaders do in that say do gap is fill it in with intention, and presume that you will give me the benefit of the doubt for the intention I had for that say and that do to match, whether they matched mm-hmm. or not. And that you know they're likely to have collected data points, so they're likely to collected evidence to support what their intention is through some of the behaviors but miss the things that other people pick up that they may have um you know disregarded or, or dismissed as well, and not only you absolutely not only have they collected that data they they have avoided the absence of data that would disconfirm those conclusions which is far more abundant than the data that they're manufacturing to support their alignment mm. I have been um, doing a lot of work in the feedback space and, and it seems that this is, you know, is that the most helpful solution to identifying those gaps and really working to living in that honest space? It's, it is a very important piece of the puzzle for sure. Um, but there's a lot of ways to get that data, right? So there are certainly formal mechanisms and multi-rater tools and organizational surveys um, sometimes those the lacking indicators in that data can be dangerously long. And so you have to have other mechanisms to support more frequent data. Ultimately, the best thing, here's a, a very simple barometer that I tell leaders all the time. If there's not someone coming into your office multiple times a week, telling you something that makes you uncomfortable to hear, you can be very confident your leadership sucks. Because, because they're telling somebody. And if your conclusion is, 
that the reason they're not coming into my office is because there isn't anything uncomfortable to say. Now you're stupid. Because to, to presume that things are all just fine in any complex, if you have a team of four, there's already enough complexity, much less a whole organization or department or region. And so you have to ask yourself, where is that, where that, where's that data going? If it's not coming to me, or certainly it's being highly sifted and sanitized before it gets to me, who's got the real story? Every night at the dinner tables of people you lead, there are stories being told about you. Mm. If you don't know what stories are being told, you should be curious about that. Mm. Yeah, and and not try to control it, but more try to influence through behavior yourself. Because I think, you know, that's often what, what people try to do is they try to control the narrative as opposed to- Control the to- narrative, which only makes it worse. Because the minute somebody sees you trying to impose a narrative on the one they already believe, they just double down on the one they already believe. So um, it's how do you get to the stage? You know, I my background is in banking and I started in operations. I started managing a, a contact centre and um, I, always, I remember when the CEO was coming. It was a two-week uh preparation we were it was this show it was a performance and I I always thought why why is it so why is it so stressful why do we have to put be put under so much pressure when someone who works in our organization is coming to see what we do why can't we share what's actually going on and that for me was a huge erosion like a rotor of trust Um, absolutely I didn't understand it um but I see that I see that happening and I know that the real stories weren't getting to the CEO because there are just so many levels. Do you get past, like, how do, how do CEOs get past that? Well, they have to, it's a great question, Shelly. They have to want to get past it, right? Because that CEO was very well aware. He's, he's not stupid. He was very well aware he was being performed to, right? Mm. People were putting far more than just the best foot forward. Um, and there's something about that he liked. Mm. Because if he felt like he wanted to know what was behind the curtain, he'd find out. And so the curiosity any CEO should raise in their minds when they're being performed to is, what is it they're not telling me? And, why do, and what have I done to make it so they don't want to tell me? Because if you think that what they're keeping from you is useful to have kept from you, you are really inserting risk into your culture. Uh, and so CEOs that I know do, do this very well, A, show up unannounced, and B, are very clear they want to talk to people. They do not want to be performed to. They don't want tours. They don't want slideshows. They don't want any performance. They want to just talk to people, and they want to listen. And then they actually do listen. And they act upon what they learn. And as soon as somebody has that experience of you, they'll put themselves more at ease to actually tell you the truth. But if you show up with an entourage in the jet uh, and are followed by an entourage of people in the room and you know, create all the trappings of power and expect special lunches and you know, take over a whole conference room while you're there and have to take special calls and it looks like all that buzz in the room about your presence, um, you have to be honest about how much you're enjoying that and how much it's feeding your ego and making you feel very important. Um, and... You, that, 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 that certainly feels wonderful. It comes at a price and you have to be real clear about the price you're paying for that treatment. Do you think that we're only just starting to see the price of that um, because of people saying, well, I actually do have a choice and I'm choosing not to stay with an organisation that doesn't value honesty? 
or you know, I think the sorry, the perception of honesty. I'll say. I think we've known it for years. I don't think it's news at all. I think we finally have decided we have other choices. I think we've known about it. We've known that yeah. that toxicity has a, pr- a high price for years. Yeah. How many more Exxon Valdez stories? How many more Spatial Challenger? How many more groupthink disasters do we need to prove that that kind of culture is dangerous and toxic? Mm. Um, uh, so we had mounting de- evidence for decades. I think what the, I don't think the pandemic caused this, but I think the pandemic revealed it, mm. that life's too short life's too fragile. And my conscience and my soul is not for sale. And I don't want to subject myself to an environment where, I mean, we, we have studied this. We actually just did a bunch of research and published it in HBR on moral injury, right? It's the, it's the no, our, our brains process trauma in the same way as PTSD in a moral sense, when we have to subject ourselves to watching people be mistreated, watching people lie, watching unfair decision-making, watching resource misallocation, our brains process that in the same way as trauma. And it's called moral injury. It's like the wounding of the soul. PTSD is our physical, we fear our physical safety. Um, Moral injury is fearing our moral safety. That's great. I've never Uh, heard that before. One, we fear our mortality and one, we fear our morality. Um, and our brains process it no differently. And we now know that moral injury, but mostly is studied under, used to be under the military, right? When military would have to observe atrocities in wartime. Then the healthcare industry became under huge scrutiny during the pandemic when nurses were having to watch people die and make horrible choices about who to treat. And then we found out in other high pressure work systems that moral injuries happening the same way. And in our workplaces in the last two years, it came screaming out in full force. And now what people have decided is it's not worth it. And um, that there is opportunity to to move somewhere else, but there's also this risk that they're going from the fat into the fryer, um, yeah. And that insecurity or the unknown or the fear of I'm just going to get straight back into something is is still holding enough people back for for some organisations to still continue operating with that ego centered. Um, perform at all costs kind of approach. Well, but, but, well, look, but to, to my point, oh, look who they're holding back. It's not their best talent, right? <clears throat> and so you're losing your, your best people and, and those people are performing in place. They're doing enough to get by and not get you know, caught doing so little. Uh, and at some point, you know, competitively, you will fall behind. It's just inevitable. It's not like it's um, you, you can get away with performing with mediocre talent too long, no matter how much of a monopoly you have on your industry or how much market share you have or whatever your innovation pipeline is, at some point, uh, there'll be an invoice delivered with interest uh, for that kind of toxic environment and you won't be able to pay it and you'll become morally bankrupt if not financially bankrupt. And if you think you can sort of um, bypass that and move to another organization, you know, before that happens or, or be ahead of it, I think organizations, I think um, recruiters as well are getting a lot smarter with who it is that they're bringing in and what are the values that actually drive their behavior and, and you know, how they lead. So um, there's a, an expiry date on individuals operating in certain ways. And I think that, that many Many, many very talented people are, know they have choices and they're, 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 they're scrutinizing the organization. In their interviews, they're asking very hard questions. 
uh, and they're being very tough on, on environments. And if they don't get the answers they want, they don't take the offer. And yeah. suddenly when you have to, when a recruiter or an HR person has to go to a senior vice president or a division president or a COO or even a CEO and say, we've made 20 offers and everybody has said no. You, you can't just simply say, well, the offers weren't good mm. or work harder, right? That's screaming feedback to you that there's something, something deeper in the groundwater that's a problem. It's not just what's coming out of the faucet. It's in the groundwater. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if I think about what drives, so I think you can have people that have great intentions and they are honest and they operate in a, um, in a way that you know, upholds their integrity and that of the organisation um, until they get close to exhaustion and burnout. And this is what I'm seeing a lot with leaders at the moment is there's, it's just been so, so much for so long and they haven't really learned to adjust their leadership style to suit the new way of working, which is um, you don't have to handhold or micromanage. It's about empowering people and letting go and letting them be responsible. But so many leaders are still trying, you know, holding on to being everything to everyone. And it's the, I'm seeing the exhaustion and the burnout create behaviours that go against and even sometimes not operating in an honest way because they're just so depleted. Have you seen anything like that? And what are your thoughts? Oh, sure. And I think what, again, the pandemic didn't cause this, but I think it revealed it was how many leaders were not prepared to lead, mm. right? They, they, they were conditioned to believe that the value they created was being the answer ATM, was being the you know, first among equals talented person, smartest kid in the class. And that's why they exerted so much energy, but it was very gratifying. Well, well the, while the compression you created in decision-making was very flattening. Well, the pandemic didn't give you the luxury of doing that. People were outside your purview. You had to let go of things that you didn't let go, didn't normally have to let go of. You had to trust in ways you were never conditioned to trust. Um, and you had a, and then once you actually saw that your people were doing just fine without you, you had this existential crisis of, oh my gosh, what value do I actually add? And I think that neuroticism caused leaders to double down and try and frantically create the illusion of, of adding value and drove either people crazy or drove them out of the organization or, or some leaders flourished and realized, oh my gosh, this is what leadership actually requires of me. I don't have to be the smartest kid in the class. I don't have to do all the jobs. I don't have to be better than everybody else. My job is to make them the smartest kid in the class. And many leaders you know, did get the, finally the penny dropped and they got it. But for many leaders, it was an existential crisis of meaning and identity in realizing that what you thought your value was, wasn't ever your value. And the things you thought that were good actually drove people crazy. And so if we've got leaders listening to this podcast and saying, I am burnt out, I am, I'm all of the things that you've spoken about, what do I do? <laughs> what are my options? Well, you first have to replenish, right? You have to get away and figure out some way to restore your soul. You have to re rediscover what you love about what you do and why you do it and, and connect to a much deeper sense of purpose and meaning in your work. I think, you know, white men over 50 are the, the most depressed category of men and people in the world. The suicide rates are the highest among that group because suddenly they're waking up and realizing, what the heck was that all for? You know, suddenly they were, they were on this conveyor belt for 25 years and just in cruise control. And suddenly I woke up and realized, what, what did I do all that for? 
um, or they had hit some other catastrophe with their health or they got laid off or something woke them up to realize, I don't know why I'm here, but I don't think it's that. And so if you can't answer the question, why do I wake up in the morning? Uh, and what, what, what makes my heart beat faster in a good way? What is it, you know, what's the unique fingerprint on the world I wanna leave? And through what, through what vehicle do I wanna leave it? And does this work provide that platform for me? If you can't answer those questions, first of all, remember that your children and your close loved ones are watching. So your story is playing out in a very public way. Forget about the people you lead, that they're important too, but the people who you most love and trust are watching to see how you spend this one life you get. And if you're not clear on, on what you want that epitaph to say, on what, what you, I mean, you know, it's cliche, but what is it you want people to say at your funeral? Hopefully in another 30 years. Um, if you don't know the answer to those questions, you will spend another 30 years marking time on a treadmill and then really wake up depressed and meaningful. I've had so many executives say to me on that transition out of the workplace, the only thing I ever felt at was retirement because I didn't know how to do it. I, my identity was so steeply wrapped in my title, my earning, my, my achievements, my work. You know, you just, just think about it. when somebody asks you, oh, you know, when you introduce yourself, what is it? You, how do you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is, and I am a, and so if you have associated your identity with a thing or a work or a job that you suddenly realize it isn't who you want, you know, what you do and who you are aren't the same thing, um, that the value you bring to the world is not metered by what you produce, that maybe that's evidence of your value, but it's not the reason you're valuable. But if you conflated all those things for so long and, look, and sought out all that reinforcement and now suddenly realize it was a, was a, was a deflated currency, and it no longer pays those emotional bills, you have some work to do. Um, it's not too late, it's never too late. Mm. Um, but don't assume it's all just gonna work itself out because that's not the case. Uh, and also important to to realize that you're not the only one who is feeling right. like this. And because you're feeling like this doesn't make you any less than, um, that you know it's not about taking this on because it, it concerns me the, the number of suicides you know is it that we've we've taken it on all on our own and that there's not right. because there's always external factors we're, we're here Absolutely. doing what we're doing for a reason and you know I think what's so key about that Shelley is whatever it is you do you can't do it alone yeah there's lots of pathways you can take out of a ditch like this um just start with the assumption you need help of, of some kind from some person, you, there's lots of different versions of that. But if you assume you're going to bootstrap this, you'll make it worse. Mm, absolutely. So just sort of in theme with, you know, um, this fast speed wanting to get everything done, um, you know, think about honesty, the connection to truth and what all that means. Because I think what is the truth is what I think is what other people think. And perspectives are huge in this. And yeah. how you need time to do that. Is there a way that you can kind of be constantly gathering different perspectives to not, not force you to stop and do all this stuff first, I guess? Well, I think, I think, unfortunately, we live in an environment, I think social media has intensified this. We live in an environment now that has confused speaking your truth with speaking the truth. And I think we have to we have to really disentangle that because 
speaking louder and with more chronic certainty and with greater levels of conviction and contempt doesn't make you more right. Um, it makes you more unhearable. And we have got to reintroduce a level of civility and a level of curiosity into our conversations. If our goal is this reflexive need to refute, convert, and fix people so that they agree with us, um, you're on a fool's errand. Um, we have to learn that understanding doesn't equal agreement. You don't have to have somebody share everything you think to befriend them, to be colleagues with them, to respect them. We've got to disentangle all that mess. Um, I think the data you should be gathering is starting with inside you. Um, rather than being so concerned about who you do and don't trust, but based on what you think is trustworthy, remember that trust is a currency. You, you may extend or withhold trust based on somebody's character. Somebody else may extend or withhold trust based on their competence. Somebody else may extend or withhold trust based on personality similarities. None of those are any more legitimate than the other, but you have to know what currency you're trading in to earn the trust of others. If you just assume they'll give you their trust based on how you extend it, you're, you're also playing a dangerous game. Uh, secondly, start inside. Uh, you know, one of the exercises I love to ask leaders to do is to look at their last 10 days of their life and ask themselves. So, you know, University of Massachusetts data says we all, we all lie on average about twice a day. The definition of honesty, we we, did, we found in the research, both in the neuroscience and in the social science, was truth, justice, and purpose. So in other words, you don't get labeled honest for just telling the truth. You have to tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good. Right? Say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. We all have lapses in those moments in our life. But what's really important is that they're not random. If I were to ask you to go back over the last 10 days and examine the places where you weren't your best self, you were curt with the barista, you blew off your kids, you embellished data to your boss, you took a slide out of a deck to make sure you got your budget, you, you, you back soft-pedaled feedback to your direct report to avoid a conflict, whatever they were, examine, find eight or 10 moments in the last week or so where you would say, yes, I did not live true to the values I claim. What I promise you is you'll find a pattern. I promise you that you'll, what you'll find is the moments that bring you to your dishonesty are moments you have chosen to believe the alternative behavior is somehow safer, is somehow better, will somehow engineer a certain response, will certainly get you seen in a certain light. There's a need and a purpose you are serving with those choices. And if you can come to understand what that is, you can then level up on your honesty. But you can't be more honest until you come to, to be honest about your dishonesty. You cannot be more true to yourself until you're more true about yourself. So, so my truth is only my truth until I look at the behaviors where I'm not necessarily being honest and I look at the connection between that and my values to actually realize that my truth isn't even my truth. Well, it might not be. It might be, a, it might be something you've concocted, but it certainly isn't the truth. So what's and the truth? Well, I, you know, is there is there universal truth? I mean, some believe there are. Some people have different values or faith practices or you know um, social practices or Buddha, you know meditation practices that bring them to a, a universal truth. Are there universal values? I believe there are. Right? We all want to be good-hearted. We all want to care. We all, but but to impose your truth as the truth to negate someone else's truth you don't agree with is definitely not the truth. And I think we have just we've so passed those blurred those boundaries now. Um, and we just assume that, you know, a ranting declaration of what I believe is the truth. And anything that refutes what you believe 
uh, makes you wrong. And that's, which is really the goal. My goal isn't to find a universal common ground or a common truth between us. My goal is to make you wrong. And I can see how that would play out um, in those conditions where I am tired. There is lots to get on with and do. I'm yes. sick of listening and, and hearing and trying to understand everybody else because it, it slows me down or it stops me or I get hit with these things that they make a lot of sense. I just don't know what to do with them now and I don't have the time don't to sort out. Well, and, and then compound all that, Shelley, with an echo chamber that is feeding you, whether you believe it or not, you know, whether it's in your social media feed or in your news feeds, you are being fed anything that will reinforce what you already believe. And you are seeing intentionally not seeing any disconfirming data that would offer you a different point of view. So when your echo chamber gets crashed with another, you know, grossly different perspective, you're traumatized. You're, you get a, a fight or flight trigger response and your goal is to close the dissonance, which means to refute it. Because to entertain it as having any merit means I now have to reorganize everything I believe. And I don't want to do that. So I don't want to believe yeah. that that I don't want to believe that anything I've already concluded was wasn't right, or or at yeah, best maybe it was incomplete. Seems quite comfortable to stick with that option as opposed to you know actively going out and, and seeking something different, which is the very thing leaders have to do. You have to go seek this confirming data. You have to go find out who you've othered, and go get to know them. Everybody has a they. And if you cannot broaden your definition of we to include some of your they's, um, you will continue to fragment the world. And what we know about fragmentation in organizations is that when there are unresolved border wars or when there are, when there are seams that are unstitched in your organization, you are six times more likely to have people be dishonest. Because when you fragment the organization, you fragment the truth. When I have dueling truths, my goal is now to make you wrong and me right. Think about it, sales, marketing, supply chain operations, R&D, innovation, HR, and everybody. Um, those border wars are there for reasons. And, we, and, we, and you just think about the person you see in your caller ID when you, to whom you react, oh, what do they want, right? That's your they. That's the person you need to be having coffee with next week to find out why. And by the way, remember, you're somebody's they too. There's somebody who sees you in the caller ID and rolls their eyes and thinks, oh God, I don't want to talk to him. Why? What have you done? To, you know, and go, go to that person and simply say, what can I do to be a better colleague to you? What is it I don't know about you that you wish I knew? What is it that I can do to make your life easier? Um, and find out you know, all the things. And whenever I, we bring groups together that are having some kind of unresolved rivalry or silly, petty conflict, all we hear in the entire very structured facilitated session is, that's why you do that? Oh, no wonder I drive you crazy. Or I didn't know that's how you got measured. Or, oh, that's why you asked for that. All these, they, all these assumptions get, get completely dismantled and all these belief systems get disentangled. And all of a sudden I've rehumanized you to see you as somebody that I now have empathy for, that I now understand why I drove you crazy. And you understand why you drove me crazy. And do you think? But, those... but if you keep all that in your head and you don't have that conversation, you just continue to other people and vilify them and make them wrong and you right. Mm. And to your point earlier, very comforting, but very dangerous. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I see a lot of that in the in the workshops that I run as well is, you know, you you and it, it's almost that the leader has decided that they're going to switch off everything else for the day or, or a couple of hours and the conditions seem right for them to sit back and listen. So, you know, as a facilitator, it's like I can give you the questions to ask, but it's almost around how can I provide the environment for you to actually be here with me right now, not everywhere else. Uh, but a, a workshop or, or something every now and then isn't enough. It's how do I create my own environment to be fully present to actually, because there's no doubt that, you know, the people that say, oh, is that why I annoy you? The other person's probably thinking, yeah, I've told you this about 10 times. <laughs> right. and, and, and truth be told, what you'd find is that they actually haven't told them, right? They've hinted at it, but they've never actually given that feedback, right? But the reality mm-hmm. is work that needs to be linked needs a linking mechanism. There has to be governance or process. There has to be a reason to bring those paths together. Good intentions. Most of those seams that are unseemly and unstitched are not personality conflicts. They're much deeper. They're designed. You know, you have competing KPIs. You have no governance mechanisms that brings those people together. You have no form in which they can exchange views. There is no consistent process by which they actually share work. Right? There's a linking mechanism not designed into the organization that allows that pathway to work. Right, so good intentions and my desire to be a good colleague are far too in- inadequate to make that work. You have to sit down and actually design how is this scene going to work. And so, um, is there the opportunity for leaders, if particularly leaders of leaders, to uh, ask, you know, in their regular conversations, um, who have you had a conversation with that you haven't wanted to have, and what did you learn about someone that you? you're frustrated by or that irritates you is that the kind of thing that we can be doing to encourage our leaders to then go and do that i i think leaders of leaders asking those questions is great i think leaders and leaders leaders of leaders modeling that behavior is even better let me tell you about how i learned or let me tell you what i went and solicited so light the path for the leaders you're leading to follow your example don't just go expect it of them when they're watching you not do it Mm. And it's interesting because when I hear that, um, you know, often we'll hear my team is really struggling with this team. They're not getting along. There's conflict. How do I work with my team? My first com- my first question is, what's your relationship like with their, their leader? Right. That, and that's the place you have to start because you can always tell if mom and dad are fighting, the kids are going to fight. And so if you don't fix that relationship, and, and it could be a succession overhang. It could be you're both, you both believe you're, believe you're vying for the same job. Mm. Um, truth is, probably none of you are being considered for it. Um, but it's, it's silly to you know, use that as an excuse. But there's all kinds of excuses. A lot of times what you'll find is that those, those rivalries are systemically built in. I've had many conflicts where I've, I've dug up underneath and found KPIs that were completely at odds with each other. And so, you know, when you're being measured on a certain output that contradicts the measurement of this group's thing, but you have to collaborate, you've now institutionalized that conflict. It's not that people often blame personality and say, let's go do team building, which of course is just annoying to people because the, 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 the difference and the dissonance lies at a much deeper level than just personality or, or conflict skills, or let's learn how to have difficult conversations or let's go out and climb ropes together. You have to look at the entire design of the system to see are there things in fact encouraging this rivalry? Mm. And that it's a it's a process, it's a long game. It's not something that you can go, all right, well, this is going to be our focus for the next six months. This is 
this is, I, I would say, the future of the survival of organizations. No value in an organization is created in any one scene, in any one group or division or department. Anything competitively distinctive, it happens at a scene, right? Innovation is the byproduct of market research, innovation, R&D, and, you know, manufacturing. Mm. Um, customer services that really resides at the issue of order delivery, supply chain logistics, and customer analytics, right? So all those capabilities have to come together in a way that create that differentiating capability. The, the scenes need to be, need to be, um, indis- need to be indistinguishable. Mm. And if those fiefdoms are hanging on to territorially or, or data or muscles or information or approaches that make those seams not work, then you're just compromising your competitive muscle. Mm. So valuable. Um, so some really great insights. Um, thank you for sharing with us, Ron. I'm curious, what is, where does your focus turn um, after you know the honesty thing, you've got nine books. Um, what's do you know what's next? Um, well, so I, I, this is you know this this baby's just been born. So I, I you know I, I spent my whole career holding up mirrors to organizations to invite them to greater levels of honesty, but um, but but I think I want to keep changing the conversation. So I don't know that I'm going to abandon this anytime soon. I, I think that this trust recession will only, only intensify. Mm. And I think the polarization okay. you know, politically, socially will only continue to enter our organizations more and more. Mm. And I think uh, business still is a bastion of an of a opportunity to create better good in a, in a more equitable world. And I wanna call organizations to that more. And so I think this is just the beginning of that ride for me. So great to see you doing um, that work. And I look forward to continuing to see, you know, your contributions because I think it, it, you know, it's going to make a, a huge difference um, the more we talk about it. But thank you so much for joining us on the, um, on the show. And I look forward to um, keeping in touch. My pleasure, Shelley. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for listening. I look forward to a, another Dynamic Leader conversation with you soon. Thanks again for listening to an episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging, and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.